After backing Russia's war, Conti ransomware retools and paying ransomware actors. It's a business decision. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. In our first story of this week, ISMG Executive Editor Matthew Schwartz examines how the Conti Ransomware Group is rebranding as multiple other ransomware groups. So what does this mean for the group's future? Good news on the ransomware front. The notorious Conti Group, tied to two millions of dollars in extortion, appears to be running scared. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean the 200-odd criminals in the group, who are based in the Russian Federation, appear likely to disappear anytime soon. So Conti was by far one of the most complicated, the most successful ransomware a cybercrime, a cybercriminal enterprise, basically, consists of lots of top developers, ransomware coders, you know, penetration testing teams. That's Vitaly Kremez, CEO and chairman of the threat intelligence firm Advintel, based in New York City. So what's happened with them is so they got into basically, I guess, too big for themselves. So they got, you know, very political with their statements. So they not only became a ransomware uh, kind of business, but they all started data exfiltration, extortion, and also started like posting lots of publicity stunts. One of them was evolving around Ukraine, uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict, which brought a lot of heat to them, where they publicly stated that they support Russia and they'll retaliate against anyone who targets Russian Federation. Conti publicly stating its support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine had some unforeseen consequences for the group. For starters, the PR stunt drove a Ukrainian security researcher to leak a huge amount of Conti's internal chats and source code. Researchers continue to pour over the chats, which have revealed or verified numerous facts. For example, the head of Conti, codenamed Stern in the chats, appears to have close ties to Russia's principal security agency, the Federal Security Service, also known as the FSB. Kremes says that connection led to a massive falloff in Conti's ransomware proceeds. That's because many victims did not want to fall afoul of the U.S. Treasury Department's OFAC sanctions by giving money to an entity that appeared to be affiliated with the Russian state. Once Conti's leadership figured out why ransomware wasn't so profitable anymore, Kremes says they accelerated plans to create numerous spin-off brands not least to ditch the Conti brand name. Now they move to different other groups. They form their own operations, including Quantum, Hive, uh, Alpha, V, Black Cat, ransomware groups. So they're, ve- they're very, very active. Some of Conti's spin-off groups appear to have been changing their approach further. In some cases, for example, they aren't even using crypto-locking malware anymore, but rather focusing on stealing data and extorting victims. Kremez says, noting that this approach has proven to be more successful, at least for some of the attack groups, in part because such attacks can be quicker and easier. I think it's for two reasons it's more successful, because basically deploying a ransomware as a locker, it's very expensive. So you need to spend days and nights uh, finding domain admin privileges. You need to deploy to network wide. You need to find backups. You need to get access to vCenters and all of that. It's a complex operation. takes a lot of time. But exfiltration is easier and quite honestly more successful for them. As that highlights, cybercrime remains about profit. And if the ransomware profits have been declining for the likes of Conti, 
they're not afraid to seek out new ways to turn a new type of profit from victims, or at least until they've earned enough money. But do they ever really earn enough? It's a good question. Uh, generally, you know, I guess this lifestyle that they have, it affords lots of luxuries, especially specifically if you live like in Eastern Europe, you can afford uh, Lamborghinis. They're like oligarchs, literally. They live the lifestyle of the richest of the riches. So it's hard to go back to this lifestyle where you have to work hard and just earn money the right way. So oftentimes it's like once they get hooked into this business, it's hard to get away. The only ways we've seen them get away from this business when the Russian intelligence or law enforcement agents have recruited them for their own operations. That's what happened with the creator of the Zeus malware, Slavic, who we all suspect and we all know that he works with the Russian intelligence and law enforcement agencies now. So some of the most successful ones became forceful employees for Russian intelligence, basically. And that's the way out. How many more cyber criminals might graduate into the ranks of Russian intelligence, however, remains unclear. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. In this next clip, ISMG's Jeremy Kirk, Managing Editor of Security and Technology, considers the dilemma facing businesses when struck with a ransom demand. Having to decide whether to pay a ransom to cybercriminals is a decision no one wants to make. But experts say that practitioners should stay objective and leave the decision and the subsequent moral implications to the business. Paul Furtado is a vice president and analyst with Gartner, who spoke earlier this week at a Gartner summit in Sydney. Two to three times a month, he gets called in to help somewhere in the world with an active ransomware incident. He hasn't seen an organization take paying a ransom off the table from the start. Here's Paul. I have yet to see an organization going through that that says, no, I'm not going to pay. The reality is they're going to do what they need to do and give you that blank check to get the business back to a functional level. Ransomware is a nearly perfect crime. Encrypting a company's data and holding it hostage has been an astonishingly effective criminal ploy with a low risk and high reward. Governments such as the U.S. and Australia have developed plans to combat transnational ransomware gangs, but their actions will take time. Furtado says up to a third of organizations pay the ransom, even though it's advised to try to avoid doing that. The majority of those organizations do get access to their data as a result, as cyber criminals generally hold up their end of the deal. But security practitioners should be aware that they will be asked by the business what to do after an attack and whether to pay. Furtado says businesses have to consider what's the maximum tolerable outage as well as other impacts of the decisions they must make. Daniel Smith is CISO of Hearing Australia, and he echoes Furtado's view. He says it's important that those on security teams realize that the call on whether to pay or not is not theirs. Smith was called on to help another Australian organization in the aged care sector recover from an attack by the R-Evil gang. He presented his experiences at the Gartner Summit as well. The victim organization was not identified by name. But Smith says there was one person at the organization who had a very strong view on whether to pay the ransom. It didn't lead to a great outcome for that person. Uh, there was one particular individual involved in this event that worked for the organization that had a very, very strong personal view on the payment of ransoms. Um, the, the repetition of those personal views uh, ended up with that person being bundled out of the conversation because they were no longer objective. So even if you do have a strong view on the payment of ransoms, 
The main objective, if you're a CIO or a CISO, you're there as a subject matter expert. You will provide advice only. You will not be responsible for making the decision. That will be the board's decision. So leave it to them. Just provide the advice as best you can. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. And finally, how has the Great Resignation impacted financial institutions and most specifically their fraud teams? Well, this is a question posed by Tom Field, our Senior Vice President of Editorial, to Julie Conroy, Head of Risk Insights and Advisory at 8 Navarica Group at ISMG's recent fraud summit. Here's Conroy. 67% of institutions that we recently surveyed on this topic are seeing an increase in voluntary resignation as a result of of this talent gap, as we have migrated back to the new normal post-pandemic, to to use a a very overused term, we're seeing that a lot of people don't want to go back to the office. And they have choices because there are so many firms out there that are open to having remote workers because we've seen that it works. And so this is something, especially in the analytics and and the the technology competencies, financial institutions are, are finding themselves competing with a whole new set of players for talent. You know, you're, you're headquartered in Des Moines, Iowa, but you're all of a sudden competing with Silicon Valley in Seattle for your, for your analytics and tech staff because you can work from Des Moines just as effectively as you, as you can from the, those higher price markets. So it's a challenge. We, we see that institutions are competing based on salary. They're increasing some of their salaries in some cases. They're, you know, increasing some of the incentive plans. One thing I think Everybody needs to also be cognizant of and, and bringing into their talent attraction and retention program is that flexibility component and realizing that we've got a new breed of worker that doesn't want to go into the office every day. And we need to recognize that. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. The music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.